Good morning, everyone. My name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. We are um, in, a, in the third week of a five-week series called Not Your Abomination. And this series came about because so many of you have been asking for a really long time to be walked through those scripture verses that are most commonly used to harm LGBTQ people, known as the clobber verses. So uh, we started in week one with an overview of how complicated scripture is and how pulling out single uh, verses in the way that a lot of the clobber passages do isn't a very good way to read the Bible after all. Um, and if you didn't get to see that, I really encourage you to kind of circle back and get that overview. But I did promise we would also go verse by verse and take those verses on their own terms and dissect them. This week, we are taking actually a story, um, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is actually a little misleading. It's really the story of Sodom, and in the end, Gomorrah gets destroyed with it without really a whole lot of explanation as to why. Now, normally, we would have already had the scripture reading before I started talking to you, but I wanted to come in and begin first with a trigger warning, because the story of Sodom, um, however you interpret it, is a story about sexual assault and attempted rape. This is the scripture that we have for today, and it's in the scripture, so trigger warning regarding the scripture itself. Um, but also we'll be unpacking it throughout the sermon, and so I will be talking about sexual violence in the context of misogyny and queerphobia. Now when we talk about these things, it's really important to check in with ourselves and to know that like, if today you're just not feeling like you're in the place to engage with such a topic, that's cool. And maybe you just wanna say like, not the time, love to y'all, um, I'll be back for communion or I'll be back next week or whatever and peace out. So feel free to do that if that's where you're at. Or perhaps you can say, I want to listen to this later in the week, um, view the, the video on Facebook, or listen to the podcast to catch up when I'm in a different space. Or perhaps you do want to be in this right now, and you know that it's going to be a tough conversation, but you want to resource yourself. I want to remind you what an incredible resource your own body is. God gave you this incredible body that can regulate through all kinds of difficulty. Your breath is a beautiful gift from God. Return to it if you're feeling overwhelmed. Your five senses are uh, excellent uh, at grounding you in this moment and reminding you that God is there with you. Any kind of prayer is helpful. And so is connection to community. So I want to encourage folks to remain connected in the chat and to let folks know that if you have something that's coming up that you really want some direct support for, the DMs uh, on, on the Zao page are open and feel free to send a direct message to the Zao MKE Church page where someone will be happy uh, to, to connect with you directly and give you some support. Having said all of that, let's take a deep breath and dig into the scripture. Here's the scripture reading. The two messengers entered Sodom in the evening. Lot, who was sitting at the gate of Sodom, saw them, got up to greet them, and bowed low. 
He said, come to your servant's house, spend the night and wash your feet. Then you can get up early and go on your way. But they said, no, we will spend the night in the town square. He pleaded earnestly with them. So they went with him and entered his house. He made a big meal for them, even baking unleavened bread, and they ate. Before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, everyone from the youngest to the oldest, surrounded the house and called to Lot, Where are the men who arrived tonight? Bring them out to us so that we may have sex with them. Lot went out toward the entrance, closed the door behind him, and said, My brothers, don't do such an evil thing. I've got two daughters who are virgins. Let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them whatever you wish. But don't do anything to these men, because they are now under the protection of my roof. They said, Get out of the way, and they continued, Does this immigrant want to judge us? Now we will hurt you more than we will hurt them. They pushed Lot back and came close to breaking down the door. The men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house with them and slammed the door. Then the messengers blinded the men near the entrance of the house, from the youngest to the oldest, so that they groped around trying to find the entrance. The messengers said to Lot, Who's still with you here? Take away from this place your sons-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and everyone else you have in the city, because we are about to destroy this place. The Lord has found the cries of injustice so serious that the Lord sent us to destroy it. As the sun rose over the earth, Lot arrived in Zor, and the Lord rained down burning asphalt from the skies onto Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord destroyed these cities, the entire valley, everyone who lived in the cities, and all of the fertile land's vegetation. This is the scripture reading for today, and so we are off rolling. Now, this is the story of Sodom and sort of Gomorrah, mostly Sodom. And it is from this passage that we in our American culture get the term sodomite. Now, sodomite really just means, in the context of scripture, a person from Sodom, the way a New Yorker means a person from New York. But our culture has shifted its meaning and has begun associating the term sodomite with gay men and certain sex acts. Now, one of the immediate uh, ironies of it is that those sex acts that are referred to as sodomy through all kinds of anti-sodomy laws uh, probably mostly take place between cishet couples. But this is what our culture has done. Taken this scripture, said this scripture is clearly about sexual orientation and gayness, and in particular the desire of men to have sex with men, and, and run with that and used it to condemn a whole variety of uh, queer people in very different circumstances and relationships than is described in this very troubling story. So I want to really walk you through this story piece by piece because there is a lot of context here and very little of it has to do with sexual orientation. The scriptures describe Sodom as a wicked city, and this comes well before chapter 19, which is where we get this passage. Back in chapter 14 of Genesis, we get the context, the lay of the land, and this whole region is in a constant state of war. The kings of the north are warring with the kings of the south. 
So everyone is kind of on high alert. Everyone is self-protective. Everyone is engaging in a kind of tribalism that pits uh, self against others and really prioritizes the well-being of self at the expense of others. By the time we get to Genesis 18, God is over it. God has had it with Sodom and is ready to destroy them. It's actually a very interesting passage where we have scriptural context for the idea that God changes God's mind sometimes because we see this exchange between God and Abraham where Abraham is negotiating with God on behalf of the Sodomites. Abraham says, will you go ahead and destroy the righteous with the wicked? Because God's like, I'm done with them, the whole town, out of here. And Abraham's like, but there's got to be some good guys there. And God's like, well, I guess. Abraham's like, would you spare the city if I could find 50 good people there? God's like, sure, I guess. And then Abraham's like, well, but like, what if we were like five short? Would you, for like the fact that we were short five people, would you destroy Sodom anyway? Or would 45 good people be enough? And this negotiation goes back and forth, and Abraham whittles God down to 10 people. So Abraham is basically, at the end of negotiations, being like, cool, God, if you can find 10 good people, you'll, you'll keep hands off Sodom, right? And the scripture's like, says that God agrees to this, but then has like other stuff to do, and so leaves. <laughs> so that's what comes immediately preceding this passage that we read, which means that God apparently didn't find even 10 good people because those two messengers, sometimes that's translated as angels that are sent that meet up with Lot. They were sent there to destroy the city. So not even 10 good guys there, maybe just Lot and his crew. So they went to Lot, who is a good guy, and Lot offers them incredible hospitality makes them this lavish meal, encourages them to stay with him. They offer to stay in the town square for the night, and Lot insists, no, stay with me. Probably because Lot knows the culture and climate of his city and knows that they wouldn't be safe. That night, word had spread that there were outsiders staying in town at Lot's place, and a mob gathered. Now, when the scriptures say that the men of the town arrived. The Hebrew word used here is en oshe, which actually technically means humankind. In context, that means the entire population, all people from every corner. And they gathered here. Now, all people from every corner means that this probably could have included men and women and, and even children. But the whole point here is to give the scope that it was the entire city there with this mob energy demanding that the, the messengers, the angels, the foreigners be released to them. Because the members of this city thought that they were spies. Now this is the context of war when you say it is us versus them and violence is the way to remain safe that this culture had become so insular and so violent and so um, cruel to vulnerable and outsider people that this was their reaction. You must be spies, you must be out to get us. Not only 
Are we going to come after you to, say, cast you out of town? But we are going to dominate you with the tools of war. And one of the most cruel tools of domination throughout warfare in human history is sexual dominance, exploitation, and violence. So we have this sexual lynch mob that has come to say, we demand that they come outside and we will show them. We will dominate them. We will take care of these outsiders. Now in the scriptures, there's a very, very troubling aside here where Lot offers his daughters. This is an attempt to protect the messengers who he believes to be messengers of God. Scripture here doesn't really have a whole lot to comment on, but just shows that Lot went to extreme circumstances, extreme measures to protect his visitors. But the mob rejects this because they're not interested. It's not, it's not only that they have violence that needs to be expressed. It is directed, directed towards these outsiders. Not only do they reject his offer, but they threaten Lot as well, calling him an immigrant. They're saying, we will hurt you even more than we will hurt them. And so we see here, this is a betrayal. This is a betrayal of the culture that Lot is immersed in when he is protecting these outsiders rather than participating in the violence against them. And this mob is referencing the fact that though Lot had lived there many years, he at one point was an outsider as well. And so they threaten him with that, saying, hey, your, your, um, your acceptance here, your safety here is really conditional. You have to act just like us, just like the dominating forces here. And if you don't and you protect other vulnerable people, we will remember that you don't belong here either. And that violence will come back to you twofold. But Lot continues to protect them. And in fact, the messengers who are messengers from God are uh, able to impair the, the mob, to temporarily blind them so that they are unable to find their way in and attack. The messengers start to urge Lot to get himself and his loved ones out of the city. He hesitates to do that, and so they force him along with the family. And scripture reveals that (laughs) this turns out to be kind of a rescue mission, that Lot's family is the only good family in Sodom that God had felt obligated to bring out. And as soon as Lot and his family are outside of the city, both Sodom and Gomorrah, just because we don't really get an explanation about Gomorrah at this moment, are destroyed. This is also the bit where Lot's wife, who was told not to look back, does look back and turns into a pillar of salt. There's not really any further commentary on that either. This is one of those moments where scripture just sort of (laughs) moves quickly uh, and takes a lot of things for granted, like that it's normal and understandable in the context of this story, story that a woman would just turn into a pillar of salt. Now, At this point, when they're gone, the messengers do. They bring down hellfire. They they destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, raise them to the ground. There's no life there anymore. They even destroy the fertile soil. 
And this kind of massive destruction is supposed to be really telling, supposed to draw our attention in and say something here went so wrong that God came down and raised it to the ground. So what is the sin of Sodom? Now the queer phobes would have you believe that the sin of Sodom is, I, I suppose, um, male sexual lust for other men. But that gets ext extrapolated to mean any kind of queerness, which includes sexual orientation, which includes consenting adult relationships, which includes <laughs> queerness as an identity. And I think we've been taught for so long that that's what this story is about, that we kind of take it for granted. But when we look at the story and all of the things that are going on here, it crumbles pretty quickly. Because we see when dwelling with this story that the real sin here is the threat of humiliating, dominating, violating violence to outsiders. The sin here is the lynch mob. And it is a horrific sin, but it is not about queerness. You see, we know that this city was brewing with evil before any of this went down. And this outburst of violence is an expression of where they were at, how far they had fallen from the love of God, how deep they had invested themselves into a culture of domination and violence, cruelty, xenophobia. And none of that actually has to do anything with consenting relationships between queer adults. My favorite kind of poignant takedown of the idea that this was about gay men wanting to have gay sex is from uh, Justin Lee, who brings in a powerful and troubling, because all of this is troubling, uh, metaphor. So uh, I'd like to share a quote from Justin Lee. He says, this was a threat of violence, not a request for fun, sexy times. Imagine if the story said that two black men arrived at a rural white southern town in 1950 and a mob threatened to rape them. You wouldn't think, ooh, all these southern white guys must have been gay. No, you would understand that threat for what it was, pure vile hatred and racism. This is the sin of Sodom, the thing worth burning it all down for. The vile hatred. We have modern concepts of racism that we can't cleanly map onto the scriptures, but this idea of hatred of others is about as close as we get. This xenophobia, this othering that says, you are worth less, and I will demonstrate that to you by horrible, horrible violence. And no, when we go back to the scriptures and it says, it's very clear that all of the men were there, every, the entire population. Where in the world, where in our logic do we then go like, oh yeah, the entire town of Sodom must have been gay? 
and the gay bar probably closed for the night. They want to they wanna just like spend some time getting to know these newcomers, maybe buy them a drink. Like, no. When, when they come back at Lot, when Lot offers his daughters, problem, um, and they say no, they say, we will hurt you more than we will hurt them. This mob knows that what it is doing is not sex, it is violence. And there is an enormous difference. What was happening here was attempted gang rape. That's not about sexuality. That is about violence, power, control, domination. The culmination of all of these sins that Sodom and presumably Gomorrah had been engaging in for generations now. Luckily, we have scripture that helps us interpret these scriptures. Scripture likes to self-reference. And so many people who are trying to make sense of this passage will refer to Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49. Ezekiel describes the sin of Sodom as being overfed and unconcerned. He talks about their arrogance their indifference to the poor and needy. And ultimately, and this is the one that we, you know, a lot of people will really grab onto and say, this is the sin of Sodom, inhospitality. Now, I've got to say that not raping people is a hell of a low bar for hospitality. And so I find this explanation of, oh yeah, Sodom was just like inhospitable. Sodom was too arrogant. I find that personally dissatisfying. To me, it's like the equivalent of going to the perpetrator of an assault and saying like, well, that wasn't very nice of you, which is true and also seems woefully insufficient. On the other hand, according to the author of Genesis, God's reaction is to kill everyone. And while that might be what I sometimes want to do also in the face of horrific sexual assault, it doesn't sound like a perfectly moral intervention from a loving and thoughtful God. So my take on this is that the author of this passage of Genesis conveys the seriousness of it, if not a literal reaction from God, but the seriousness of God's assessment of this kind of sin. That this is like one of the worst things that you can do to threaten with sexual violence as a mob act of domination and terror we might as well burn it all to the ground. That that kind of group domination of vulnerable people is evil to the core. And with Ezekiel, we have a breaking down of the roots of the sin. Essentially, how did Sodom get here? How did that mob form? This didn't spring up overnight. This was a, this was a sin that was curdling the souls of this community for a long time. And so Ezekiel breaks down the roots of that evil, overfed and unconcerned, arrogant, indifferent to the poor and needy, inhospitable. Similarly, the prophet Amos references this scripture saying that they were opposing, the, I'm sorry, oppressing the needy and crushing the poor. Essentially, the people of Sodom were selfish, were self-preserving, and quick to act in violence out of a concern for self-preservation. That the fear of others involved in their warmongering 
made them violent and cruel, made them inconsiderate of people who were more vulnerable than they were. This culture had been built already. That's why God was over it by Genesis 18 before any of this story went down. But this incident of mob violence is a culmination of the sickness that was brewing in these communities long before those messengers got there. As an interesting aside, many theologians, including some very conservative ones, agree that the story of Sodom has nothing to do with sexuality. Believe it or not, Pat Robertson agrees with me on this. If you don't know who Pat Robertson is, great. But if you do, you might know that he's someone who blame, publicly blames the coronavirus and the pandemic generally on same-sex marriage. He's not on our team. But even he doesn't think this passage is about sexuality and has been filmed on the 700 Club multiple times uh, to that effect. And if you still can't believe it, because like I still kind of can't, and I've seen these, these videos, I'm just gonna share this little gem with you right now. Folks, you and I are so blessed. And you know, the Bible talks about neither were they thankful. Pride, pride, the Bible says, idleness and abundance of bread, neither were they thankful. That was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. He didn't talk about homosexuality. He said, you know, pride and, and abundance of bread and, and idleness. And they weren't thankful. So there you have it, folks. Pat Robertson and I agree on one thing. The sin of Sodom is not about sexuality. Here he says homosexuality. In other places he says outright sexuality. This is not about sexuality. This is not about queerness. It is not about love or intimacy or any of the beautiful things we talked about last week with Adam and Eve when we were talking about that holy connection flesh to flesh. This is about assault. This is about power. This is about domination. And yes, it is deeply, deeply sinful. It absolutely makes me empathize with the author of this passage who says it's worth wiping an entire city off the map for. But when we engage this text, we have to be really thoughtful in our interpretations because certain people have read this passage, which is an indictment of oppression and violence and war and um, mob lynching, and said, oh yeah, it's about the gays. How convenient. As with other anti-queer interpretations, this says a lot more about the interpreters than it does about God and certainly that it does about LGBTQ people. There is actually a parallel passage in the book of Judges, also chapter 19. It gets a lot less press. There is an old man who receives a guest, a Levite, who is a foreigner, and the Levite comes with his concubine. There is a threat of rape against the Levite, and they give over the concubine instead, the woman. 
And in that passage, she is raped to death. The details in scripture are violent and gruesome and so, so troubling. And these are the moments where I really want you to go back and listen and consider the part one of this series. Because these are the parts where I'm like, not all of the Bible is worth engaging on its face and at face value without critique. That like understanding that the Bible is complicated and written and passed down and interpreted by human beings means that there are parts of it that we have to say like, this is not okay. And these parallel stories where young vulnerable women are offered up as victims of violence in service of protecting men from that violence, these parts of the passages are not, are not questioned, they are not critiqued. It's considered an acceptable alternative to have a woman raped to death rather than putting out your guest, your visitor, who is a man. And this is where I'm like, you know what, part of the Bible maybe is like not worth defending. Maybe parts of the Bible are so skewed by human sin that we can actually call it out and say, this is complicated and not all of it is communicating the true and beautiful love of God. And that's not even the parts that people call anti-queer. That's just straight up the devaluing of the life and safety and sanctity of women's bodies. But when we go back to the interpretation, if we are trying very hard to take it on its face, if we say there must be something worth examining in these scriptures, then we have to be incredibly mindful of who is interpreting and toward what ends. Miguel de la Torre is one of my favorite biblical scholars. And he compares these two passages, Genesis 19, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, with Judges 19, a very similar passage. And he has this to say about the difference between the ways those two passages are interpreted by our culture. He says that they are very similar, but missing, however, is the same level of condemnation among modern readers for men who actually raped a woman to death as there is with the attempted yet never completed rape of men, angels, by men. One is left asking, why? Is the rape of a woman by a mob of townsfolk less grievous for God and for God's followers than a similar story about the potential rape of men by a mob? And this is where whether the problem is embedded only in our culture or both in our culture and in our scriptures, we see that the deep misogyny that we bring to the text is incredibly harmful. And it skews our readings further and further from the truth and love of God. Purity culture is built on a lot of scriptures that are interpreted to their most misogynist ends. And it creates in us these fixations about sex that get us confused and very deeply twisted. 
one of the more recent historical examples of this is the televangelist Jim Baker. Now, Jim Baker was uh, a kind of corporate Christian in the United States, and he, in the 70s and 80s, raised a lot of money. He built this kind of big empire of capitalist Christianity. And as he was doing that, raising money and building a following to get a bunch of Learjets and do all kinds of other things, in the midst of all of that sin, he, when he was 40 years old, he arranged for 21-year-old Jessica Hahn to be flown to his hotel and drugged before he and a colleague raped her. She was then threatened and bribed to keep her silent. Now his empire, Jim Baker's empire of, of uh, capitalist ambition came crashing down because of fraud. He ultimately went to prison for that fraud. But at the same time, part of that fraud that was uncovered was the hush money that he had uh, paid to Jessica Hahn. That became public. And so at that time, Han came forward and told the world what had happened, the way that she had been violently assaulted, drugged and assaulted by Jim Baker and another. Now the public analysis of this, including all of the headlines that were about it and the way our entire culture attended to this news of horrific rape, was that Jim Baker had committed infidelity that he was guilty of being sexual and greedy. He had committed adultery with Jessica Hahn, and somehow Jessica Hahn became treated as a co-conspirator to extramarital sex, even though she was very public about incredibly disturbing and violent details of her assault. She never indicated that she had consented at any point. But this was the takeaway, that Jim Baker, ooh, shame on him, he had cheated on his wife, and Jessica had done it with him. And this is one of the problems when only some people get to set the terms for discourse and interpretation. Misogynist, sex-phobic, cis-het men set the terms for the conversation that turned the drugging and gang rape of Jessica Hahn by Jim Baker and others into a story of Jim Baker and Jessica Hahn having an affair. Similarly, it is misogynistic, sex-phobic, queer-phobic, cis-het men who set the terms for the conversation about the sin of Sodom, where it turns the attempted sexual lynching of two perceived foreigners into a morality lesson about the evils of being gay? This is so common but it's so painful that people in power will recast victims as perpetrators, victims as aggressors. We see it every time a black man or a black woman is murdered by the police. Something made them the aggressor. It is so evil and it's so wrong and it is so pervasive in our culture. And in this particular case, one of the cruelties of it 
is that queer people are more likely to be victims of sexual assault than cis and straight people are. And so again, we have the victims cast as perpetrators and a culture that loves to talk about queer people as though we are sexual predators, even though we are much more likely to be victims. And if we engage in that conversation at all, if we make the mistake of bringing up our own vulnerability, it becomes turned back upon us. We are told that we are wounded and that that must be why we think we are gay in the first place. This scripture is not and was never about any of that. How convenient for so many people that the focus of this story in our culture has become about being a sexual minority. Scripture describes Sodom as a warring, self-interested, violent, xenophobic culture. This is what happens when you don't care about the vulnerable, the poor, the outsider. America is Sodom. America is Sodom. And how convenient that America has collectively pretended that this is about a persecuted sexual minority group instead of about America and particularly white America, corporate America, powerful America instead. How convenient that cishet white men get to point the finger at vulnerable people and call us sexual predators. Scripture is meant to shine a light on us and sometimes to convict us of our sin. It is true. But the sin here is not the love between queer people. The sin here is not the flesh joining the flesh again, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, partner at last. That is not what is on trial here in Sodom. This scripture in this moment is meant to hold America accountable for the sins of Sodom. Selfishness, fear-mongering, which turns into war-mongering, outbursts of violence and domination directed at vulnerable minorities are not the exception but the rule. Every time there is a lynch mob, that is the sin of Sodom. Every time there is a mass shooting, that is the sin of Sodom. Every time there is a police killing, that is the sin of Sodom. These violent outbursts against vulnerable people perceived to be other. This is a hard scripture, y'all, but not for any of the reasons that they want it to be. And the most tempting thing to do when we are convicted as a culture is to shift the blame. And in this case, the blame was shifted to queer folks. The scriptures can be a tool for good. And when I read this scripture, I just think, God, help us. God, there have got to be at least 10 of us that are worth saving, right? Now again, I don't actually believe that the author of this passage was describing something literal in the genocide at Sodom. 
But there is something true about the depth of this sin. There is something true about the extent of this evil. That these outbursts of violence, that this gathering of the many against the few is so close to irredeemable. Now, I do believe that God can redeem us all and will. And so that, when I read this passage, is my prayer. The story of Sodom should humble us, should frighten us, but not about queerness, about our own complicitness in creating a culture of violence and domination. It should in some ways comfort those of us who have been victimized by that same culture of domination. That at some level, God does long to burn it all to the ground on our behalf. But we see in ourselves even the roots of where this comes from. A lack of generosity. A concern first and foremost for self-preservation an unwillingness to sacrifice on behalf of those who are more vulnerable than us because there always are folks more vulnerable than us. And so perhaps we too, even as we reject this queerphobic interpretation, can be called to Jesus by this passage to recommit ourselves to building a culture of generosity, of openness, of trust, of resistance to mob violence, of resistance to fear, and to a hope for a future where we can all be held precious and safe. That's all I got. That's all I got on this one, y'all, and it is a tough, tough scripture. But if you want to continue working with, these, with me through these passages, next week we'll be going through the heavy hitters in Leviticus and Romans, one by one, these single verses that folks love to whip out. And again, when we do this work, no matter how much we, we come to this with a goal of being able to combat specifically on their own terms, the folks who would clobber us or our loved ones with these passages. We must also approach this with an invitation to love God and ourselves and neighbors even more. And so, just as I did last week, I'd like to invite you to sit with this text, to see how it convicts you, to see how it invites you to be more faithful to the God of love, to see how your holy rage is matched by God's fire and brimstone and also how we are all called to learn to do better than Sodom. How we are called to fight for one another and build a culture of solidarity in the face of domination. Will you pray with me? God of the universe, there are pockets of our history, there are pockets of your scripture which are hard to take in. God, we pray that you would be with us, that your healing Holy Spirit would work on us, in us, and through us. 
that we can be invited to know you and love you more and better through this passage. And that the queerphobic nonsense that is out there and the misogynist nonsense that is out there would not hinder our ability to know you, to love you, and to love each other. God, you are powerful and you have made us powerful in your image. May you heal us through even these words. Amen.